and welcome to episode 19 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. When the announcement was made that art rock legends Pylon were releasing a career-spanning box set which would include their very first demo recording, it was a no-brainer to reach out in the hope that we could speak to them here on Songs from a Padded Envelope. Excitingly, we were joined by Pylon singer Vanessa Briscoe-Hay and her musical collaborator Jason Naismith, who remastered the tracks for the box set from the original tapes. They spoke to us from their homes in Athens, Georgia, and Ben, this was a real treat, hey? It was fantastic. Uh, I think there was a point at which uh, Vanessa described, said that they'd often described themselves as tourists in the world of rock and roll, and we thought, oh, that might be the perfect tagline for the for this episode. It's... Um, I hadn't listened to Pylon before, um, and it was an amazing experience. What a completely unique band, uh, completely unique setup, people drawn together from a artistic and non-musical background, and uh, this idea of songs completely built on intuition. It's uh, It was such a treat listening to the music in preparation and then to, and then to go in and have the conversation with them. Um, with both Vanessa and, and Jason was fantastic, wasn't it? It really was. The song at the end of the show is really something to hear, especially once you've absorbed what Vanessa has to say about how it was made and her experience up to that point. It's remarkable, really, isn't it? It is. And um, the the story about how these, uh, how the, the recordings came, were, were rediscovered and how they've been... Um, cherished and put together as part of this really fantastic box set i mean the box set is aesthetically beautiful um i mean they were they came from an artistic background and uh, and it really shows in the in the design and they've carried that through um through this through this whole project haven't they yeah 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 i mean th- this episode it, it gave us an opportunity to delve into Pylon's music. I've been really blown away by it. I mean, I, I, I knew, like lots of other people, my route into Pylon was REM covering Crazy um, and that appearing on the B-side of um, the Driver 8 single and then um, the Dead, Dead Letter Office album. Uh, but that was that was the, the sort of the route in and that whole Athens GA scene um, was something that I really uh, was excited by, especially getting a, as I mentioned in the show, my copy of the the um, the documentary on VHS and playing it to death. Um, but going into their music in preparation for recording this episode, it's just it really has landed with me, and 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 I and I I definitely recommend people to go and have a listen to it. The the um, the energy in that music is quite something. It really is, and we talked about, and um, we've, we, you know, we've talked about possible uh, hearing uh, parallels with, with you know, people like Deerhoof, who are a band I hugely admire, a current contemporary band, um, and again, whilst they're completely different in the feeling that they convey, um, you know, someone like Joy Division, and they were working at a similar, similar time, though in different countries, completely, you know, far apart from each other, and probably probably working in isolation but the fact that both bands came from a similarly sort of non you know non-musical or, or you know lack of technical musical ability background and created this music that's 
born from that. It's so, so unique. It's like, unlike anything, anything else. And that any sort of, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely, definitely fed into that. And like you said, it's been a, a treasure trove of music to unlock. Yeah. Well, this podcast uses demo recordings as a way to, way into talking about music and ideas and where they can lead us and this episode has reaffirmed that idea for me in such a complete way what have you taken from this conversation the conversation with Vanessa and Jason how has, how has that landed with you well first off it was really about how how Vanessa you know how Vanessa presented she's such a I don't know for want of a better word a very real individual really open completely devoid of ego not your not your typical rock star as such i don't think she would describe herself as that um and yet she's been involved in the creation of this really unique music and is coming to it again for or third or fourth time around to present the music again and is so she was so so giving in that and in the the way that she talks about how the band had carried themselves throughout the making of their music um, it was so it's so rare to find artists who have been on the verge of something potentially huge success wise and then chosen to step away from it um, and maintained their integrity and and been happy with those decisions and that I found that that story was you know that part of the story was so heartwarming wasn't it you know, there's a few moments where where referencing the way that they made their music and the attitude behind it just hold on to all that when you come to listen to the song at the end because it's because it's a remarkable thing it's a, it's a, it's a really unique sort of listening perspective to have the other thing the other thing to sort of very much celebrate from uh, from listening to the conversation is the relationship between between Vanessa and Jason you know it seems like a pretty much a, a perfect partnership you know, a, a real, very, very different people, um, but a sort of perfect foil, perfect balance. And Jason is exactly the type of person that you would want to be responsible for looking after such a precious archive of material and and bringing that to a, to a new listenership, eh? Yes, I love the way that he's become the custodian for Pylon's archive uh, and what that means to him. Uh, which he expresses in in this episode. So our thanks to Vanessa for a brilliant conversation and also to, to Jason Naismith, who will also be rejoining us for a future episode about his own music making, which is, I'm really excited about that because there's some uh, some stuff that we uncovered about what he's been up to, uh, which is going to be really good to delve a bit more into, isn't it? It's going to be great, yeah. So thanks to Vanessa and Jason for coming on the show. And here is episode 19 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. Hello, this is Vanessa Briscoe Hay from Pylon, Pylon Reenactment Society. And at the end of the podcast, you're going to hear one of my earliest songs from the new record set coming out called Box um, by Pylon on New West Records. And the song will be the human body. Hey, I'm Jason Neesmith, co-producer on Pylon Box with Vanessa and the band and Henry Owings. And also in Pylon Reenactment Society with Vanessa Briscoe Hay. Excellent. Vanessa, you've shared Pylon's very first recording with us, so it makes sense to start there. Um, what do you remember about that recording session? 
Well, I I remember doing it. Um, I don't remember hearing it until recently, actually. So this is a rediscovery for me after you know 40 years or so. Um, I remember, uh, you know, it was perhaps a few weeks, maybe a month before we went in and recorded um, uh, our first single, Cool Deb, uh, which came out on DB Rex. And uh, we had a friend who worked at the local record store. Um, his name is Chris Rasmussen, but he has the nickname of Raz, Chris Raz. And uh, he had gotten somewhat recently a Nakamichi tape deck, which was sort of state-of-the-art at the time. And he came in and he recorded us with three microphones. So in this practice space, which was also mine and Michael LaHusky's studio, um, he put a microphone that was shared by the uh, guitarist and the bass player. And he put one mic uh, near the drums, I can't remember how because I wasn't in there, and then I was out in the hall, I could see them and they could see me, and uh, I think I had a set of headphones on, uh, which was maybe the first time I had ever tried to sing with headphones on, and uh, they could, they would just go, well, okay, I guess we'll just get started, and then, you know, boom, we would go, so um, this was sort of, uh, I think it, it wasn't like uh, ever meant to be a demo, uh, but uh, it was maybe, maybe it was like practice for going into doing the single. I'm not sure, but Jason can tell you how this was um, recently discovered. Chris Raz held on to that tape for 40 years um, and played it for very few people. He, he played it for, Randy, and I think he made copies for Vanessa and Michael and Curtis, but they weren't really sure what to do with it or kind of arrived to them at a time when they weren't looking for archival material. Um, a one track did come out on um, on uh, Gyrate Plus, that which uh, DFA Records put out back in 2009, um, but I didn't know that there were 12 other tracks on this cassette. So I... When I first got involved with, with, uh, with this project, and we weren't sure what shape it was going to take yet, Chris Raz is a, is a buddy of mine. We we go to the bar together and play rock trivia and go to concerts and things like back when you could do that. Um, and uh, so he said, "Hey, I've got something you need to hear." And he brought me over to his place, handed me a beer, put on this cassette, and he's like, "I've got." I've got a whole 45 minutes of this. I'm like, dude, this is amazing. This sounds like uh, early modern lovers to me. Like it's so immediate and, uh, and uh, like immediately appealing and charming. And, and what's rough about the recording isn't so much that it isn't completely overwhelmed by just the quality of, of what the band is doing. Um, and when he told me that, that his recording technique was three microphones, one of which was shared by the bass and the guitar amplifier. I was like, how did you do this, man? <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, so we, we made a plan to use a couple of tracks for, for the, for a non-archival project. Um, and the more we talked about it, the more I was like, I really wish we could use more of this. 
Vanessa was like, yeah, I wish we could too. Let's talk to Chris Raz about it. And, and we did, but it didn't really get that far. And eventually somebody at new West heard it, uh, Brady Brock, and he flipped out over it. Uh, and he, he approached Chris Raz and they, they made, they made a plan. So we were able to use the whole thing, uh, thankfully, because I really think it's, it could have come out on its own and been spectacular, but as, as the crown jewel of this set, um, it shines even brighter, I think. Yeah. We were talking about the track, um, before you guys came online today and there's something so elemental, so primal about the recording of it. It's got such an energy to it. Does, when you, when you hear, when you listen to the Raz tapes, does it take you straight back into the room, Vanessa? Do you remember what it was like at that moment? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I actually do remember some of it. I remember, uh, um, you know, it's like, I've got, I've got to jump in on the beat. I remember thinking that also, I remember, uh, uh, because we didn't do a whole lot of clicks or counting off or anything, you know, we just do it, you know, um, it was, it was a, uh, autumn day, not a light today. It was in the fall. I remember that, but it was still warm. So maybe it was September or October. And I think, uh, not too long after that, we went into, uh, you know, uh, the real studio to do it. And that, uh, that was a lot of fun too. But this, it was just like, uh, one, two, three, four, let's go. We just ran through every song that we could think of that we knew at that point. I mean, we had some others, but we had some brand new songs, um, which, uh, like one of them did, I hadn't even written lyrics for it yet. You can hear the band already had an arrangement, which is read a book. Um, there's another song, Feast of My Heart, which had been a contender to be on the single. Um, but I'm glad we waited because we ended up tightening up that song. Um, it did have four sets of uh, lyrics and uh, two breaks, ended up having three and one break, which made it... Uh, a better single length, you know, and I changed some of the verses around or whatever. And then there's several songs that completely fell off our set list. And, um, you know, actually I totally forgotten about those songs until I heard this tape. I guess we've, uh, you know, left a trail of our dead, you know, <laughs> and I just forgot about them. You know, you, re you record a record and then you, know, you go out and people want to hear the songs that were on that record. And, uh, you know, some of these songs are, you know, they might've ended up in our set over the years. Like we did have one show where uh, we just thought it would be funny if we did a, Okay, we had two light boxes over the stage. This is during uh, the, what we call Pylon 2. One said old songs and one said new songs. And I'd written up every single one of our songs, some of which we hadn't even practiced, and put them on slips of paper, put them in a hat, drew them out, and I go announce to the band what it was going to be. And I go over and pull a cord on this light box and it either say old song or a new song. <laughs> and we just do it. So we just like did them all, you know, like there were like 40 or 50 songs in there, some of which, you know, were rightfully never heard of again, you know. <laughs> you say that, but I, I transferred a cassette today that's got a song I'd never heard on it. And it's a, 
it appears nowhere else in the archives and it's an amazing song. I don't even know what it's called. I can't yeah. tell. A pylon song? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, I'll listen to, to it and tell you if I remember. I do have uh, quite extensive notes from certain periods and other periods. It's just like I got so busy, I stopped taking notes. Just he hearing, hearing uh, uh, getting a snapshot of that first session, there definitely seems to be something of, you know, catching lightning in a bottle about that session, you know, three mics and just one, two, three, let's go rattle through stuff. But the, but what's captured on that tape in those recordings is, is incredible. And so Jason, when you came to work on it, um, what was your, what was your kind of process, but what was your approach to, uh, to working with that music to prepare it for release? Uh, do no harm is, I'm a master engineer by by trade, uh, so that's kind of the motto I live by anyway. Yeah. Um, whatever you do, it's got to be to the positive, and you have to make sure of it. Uh, and to to decide what's good and what's bad for the recording, um, you sort of put yourself in the in the position of, I guess you have to decide: is there are you trying to perfect it or are you trying to present it as, as a natural document? And I definitely erred on the side of natural um, because of the immediacy, because of what, what are you going to, how are you going to, what's, what's to be gained by trying to fix too many mistakes in this? Uh, I can tell you one thing that the way it was recorded was like they would have done it in the sixties where the guitar and the bass were all the way on the left channel. The drums were all the way on the right channel and the vocals, vocals were center. And because people, listen in all manner of ways these days, whether it's in their car or whatever, that's not always an optimal way to listen to things. So I did have to find a way to, I mean, obviously that's easy to, to fix, but, but also to bring out Vanessa's vocals when they needed to all, all of this off of a stereo cassette recording. So there was a, uh, there was a little bit of, uh, I don't trying to reverse engineer uh, a fixed recording, but, uh, but I think if you, if you heard the unaltered tape and the one that is coming out, you would, I, I would be justified. You would say, you would say I did the right thing. <laughs> it sounds amazing. I'm write my own <laughs> review. <laughs> um, Quite right. Jason, how, how important were Pylon to you as a band? How did you, um, what sort of part did they play in your musical life? Uh, like, I mean, I, so I grew up in Atlanta and like most of the rest of the world, I heard about Pylon because REM covered them. Um, so REM being from Georgia, but not from Atlanta was, uh, you know, a weird thing for me anyway. Uh, and then I got one of their records and the first song on it is their cover of crazy. And I thought it was the best song in the whole record. Um, and then I found out it wasn't even their song. So, uh, once the CD era had come along and, uh, and DB records put out the hits CD, I bought that, um, and I was just bowled over by this band that I, I, I didn't really have, I mean, I, I'd heard punk rock and I'd heard some other stuff, but I didn't have a lot of uh, context for what I was hearing. Um, and I, I, so I wasn't immediately in love with it, but I fell in love with it quickly. Uh, and the more I listened to it, the more mysterious it became and uh, unraveling that mystery has been really fun. So they went from just a really great CD that I bought to uh, 
the band in that movie that made me want to move to this town. Um, and they just represent so much about, uh, about Athens, uh, the spirit of Athens and, uh, and to be, to have my life on this course where it, it goes from just this mysterious band to, you know, old friends who I play music with. And it's, it's a pretty crazy thing. Uh, I don't know that I can sum it up, uh, uh, shortly, but it, it's, it means a lot. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty enormous. Yeah. I had a copy of, uh, I still have my VHS copy of, uh, Athens J inside out actually. And I, I, yeah, I wore that tape out. I, I living in a, a very small, uh, seaside town in the east of, on the east coast of England, um, which was, you know, there wasn't much going on there. <laughs> it wasn't like a big urban center or anything. Um, and and it was it had so, it held so much romance and intrigue watching these people from your town um, mm. talking about their music and the and the passionate way that they went about making it. Um, yeah, I, I, it was. I wanted to move to Athens as well, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> uh, so it's a real treat to speak to you. Yeah, my, the seventeen-year-old Steve is incredibly excited about <laughs> about this. Um, but just just thinking, just going back to that original um, recording session prior to going in to making those recordings, Vanessa, how active had Pylon been? How much had be you been doing before you went in to make those recordings? Uh, well, nineteen. 79 and 1980 were very active years for us. Pylon got started in, uh, um, well, they got started, Michael and Randy were roommates and uh, art students as I was and uh, invited me to be in their band. Well, they got Curtis first, but you know, people can read about how that happened. That's just a story that people ask over and over. Um, but, uh, We'll see, we got started uh, technically February 14, 1979. Several weeks later, we played our first show, which was above Chapter 3 Records. And then uh, in the next, let's say, four or five weeks, we played uh, several more house party shows. And uh, really, we weren't really getting much of a reaction. People would just stand there and kind of stare at us and like, what is this? This isn't the B-52s, you know? This is a, you know, what we think of as rock and roll. I don't know what they were thinking. We might have been just horrible, but anyway, about, I can't remember if it was the third or the fifth show, the B-52s had been out of town and they came to see it at this house party out in the country. And as soon as they got there and they heard us, they just went bananas. They all just started dancing everywhere. And the wind was moving in and out of the rooms like a giant speaker box. And uh, they were very excited. I mean, I already uh, I, I kind of knew Kate. I was a big fan, fan of theirs. And uh, uh, she brought the bees and brought Danny Beard to see us because she wanted to see what it was that I might do because she didn't think of me as being like a musician or a singer type. I was very quiet and shy. And so she was kind of uh, curious about what it was going to be. So uh, Fred and Kate came and talked to us and they were like, we're going to help get booked to New York. And like, well, that's the whole premise of the band is, uh, the way Michael and Randy explained it to me when we started is that we would form a band, 
go to New York, play once, get written up in New York rocker, and then we disband. I mean, seriously, that was the whole goal. And at that point in time, I was thinking, this isn't going to take a whole lot of time out of my life. So <laughs> we we got booked into uh, um, Hurrah. Uh, one of their friends, uh, Robert Muller, was this uh, doorman at uh, the med club. And he knew everybody. So he knew uh, the people who booked uh, Hurrah, which is a huge club that bees have been selling out. And uh, they contacted us and they were like, well, okay, we're going to get you booked. I don't even know if they'd listen to this cassette we sent out with them. Um, would you like to open for, and we were like, no, I don't think so. No, we, you know, I mean, here are we to say stuff like this. They presented like two or three bands. So we were like, no, no, I don't No, We don't know. Cause we did like them. <laughs> Wherever <laughs> they were, I can remember one of them, but I'm not going to say their name out loud. <laughs> and uh, so they said Gang of Four. We were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We love the Gang of Four. You know, we have that first red single. I think it came out in uh, late 1978. They had damaged goods on it, and that was one that we constantly played at parties. And we were like excited by that that idea. So in August. We were playing New York City, Philadelphia, and Boston before we'd even played Atlanta. And uh, then uh, with the B-52s and the Talking Heads went on their first national tour in the fall of 1979, they toured across the country together. But when they got to Atlanta, they split up and each took a different night. And we got to open for both of them. I mean, which is just unreal. And on the basis of that, we started getting asked to um, do some. We didn't really like to open for other people, to be honest. Um, you know, because we just had our own thing that we wanted to do. We didn't mind playing smaller clubs at all. We we did it for our own reasons, you know. And at that point, it was just to have fun. But yeah, the Talking Heads and the B-52s, we love both of them. So on the basis of that, we got like a dream opener gig in Atlanta. We got to open for PIL, who we loved. And uh, then in uh, summer of 1980, uh, we got to open for the B-52s at Central Park. That's, we were not ready for that at all, but the plastics couldn't get into the United States of uh, uh, there was something to do with their visas or whatever. They, they weren't able to promise that they could play. So they called us up. We jumped in the van and literally drove straight to Central Park. <laughs> and they were like, you know, get to the gates of Central Park going, where are the B-52s playing? How do we get there? You know, and they were going, we think they're over there past the carousel. And we were driving along. Over the grass in Central Park. Oh, there's a carousel. And anybody know where the bees are playing? And people are, it's over there. And, you know, finally we found the backstage, whatever. And uh, we were just all, you know, really, we hadn't even practiced, I don't think, in weeks. Which <laughs> <laughs> was hilarious. So there was 500,000 people, people hanging in the trees, you know, all of that. So, 
anyway, that was a busy year, and uh, we ended up recording uh, Gyrat in 1980, and uh, did some uh, actual touring with the uh, Gang of Four uh, through the Midwest and uh, Canada, which we had been to before, so we did that, and, uh, you know, we did a lot of touring. I think something in the neighborhood of 350 dates in four years, which is a lot, really. Yeah. But a lot of those were in Athens <laughs> or Atlanta. <laughs> Play two nights at 688 in Atlanta or, you know, you know, we were always playing, you know, but the 40 watt or whatever. If somebody didn't show up, we'd just drag our instruments across the street and practice. So a lot of those aren't even documented. No. What did y'all oh. ask me? <laughs> if you wind it back to the beginning about how the how the sound of the band came together, it seems to be that there's something in the fact that you were coming together as kind of untrained musicians that led to the music being so innovative and unique. What was your kind of take on how the music came together? Michael and Randy, they were roommates as I mentioned you know i'm sure you'll have to chop a lot of that up because i was just going all over the place but uh um you know they started out when randy had managed to talk michael into forming a band randy was a sculpture major and michael was a uh, photography major <clears throat> and uh they so he managed to talk him into this idea of the band as the art project. And Michael's like, it's all been done before. I don't know. And then Randy, you know, talked him into it. Then they had to decide on instruments. So Michael picked bass because he thought it was the easiest. And they started out with uh, Randy playing drums and Michael on bass, but they really weren't getting very far. Uh, so Randy switched to guitar and, uh, uh, taught himself to play guitar, and he taught himself to play using what he thought was the correct tuning, but it turned out um, it wasn't. And by the time he figured that out, uh, he might have tried for one week going back and trying to do a regular tuning. He had, had so much time invested in it, written so many songs, he just was like, no, I'm going back to my way. So. He was like completely self-taught and the way he approached that instrument, uh, it was uh, very dynamic, it was very percussive, uh, making overtones, making uh, the guitar give up um, sounds that some people when they hear it, they go, oh, that's three or four overdubs, but that was just him playing, you know. And uh, Jason is a, a wizard and a magician because he's, uh, decoded quite a bit of that and learned how to play it. And so then they, uh, <laughs> so then they uh, were very lucky because upstairs while they were going on and on and on, going through the same parts, and then maybe going, discovering that they could change one part of it just a little bit. Um, uh, the landlord who lived upstairs uh, was Curtis Crow, and he had a little drumming experience. Uh, um, in high school and in elementary school, I think he had a band called Billy and the Kids where he was beating on a cement bucket or something. But uh, 
you know, he actually knew how to keep the beat. And uh, he and his friend Bill Taper was hearing this racket just going over and over and over through the floor. And they were like, you know, they need a drummer. So Curtis was like, I'm a drummer. So he went downstairs and um, <clears throat> said, hey, do you guys need a drummer? And they were like, wow, you know, that must have seemed like a miracle or something, you know, that a drummer suddenly appeared at the door. And uh, they continued to practice, and uh, they uh, tried uh, several guys out to be the vocalist, uh, but one of them, I think, brought in a guitar and wanted to uh, try to, you know, make, you know, he had ideas about what to do in songs and stuff, and they weren't interested in that. So uh, they, uh, um, tried another guy that didn't work out for whatever reason. They were giving up, so they were going to use, like, teacher parakeet to talk or weather radio sounds or, you know, like, you know, kind of bringing these sounds in with the band or whatever. And uh, <laughs> and uh, it just wasn't getting anywhere. And then just kind of like as a last-ditch effort, they were like, well, Vanessa's our friend. She's still in town. Um why don't we ask her, you know? And so they asked me to come in and I auditioned and I don't think they could even hear me, but uh, they could see that I was put forth some kind of effort. And so um, they called me up the next day. They said, uh, you're in, you know, uh, explain the premise. And I was like, this isn't going to take up too much of my life, you know? You hadn't been in a band before? No, no. Uh, a high school, I was in the marching band. I played flute, and uh, I, I was in the high school chorus for one year, but I was a, uh, not a, never a soloist. Uh, uh, I mean, as a matter of fact, my chorus director a few years ago contacted me and said, I finally heard Pilot, and I can't believe that that sweet little girl's voice is you. you know? <laughs> 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 so I don't, you know, and as far as where I come from and all of this mix, you know, we all wrote songs together and I was just always trying to find my place within the song. And a lot of, I think our philosophy came from art school. Um, we were all interested in minimalism we understood about negative and positive space and about thinking outside the box. And uh, I just tried to find my place within, you know, that machine that didn't interfere with the other parts of the machine. You know? How quickly did the lyric writing process come for you then? Did you, did you become well, comfortable with that quite quickly? No, not real quickly, but I did start writing and some of my earliest efforts or some of the silliest ones on RAS tape, like modern day fashion woman. Um, but uh, um, um, it, at first the lyrics were provided to me and then as time went on, um, I wrote more and more lyrics. Um, and sometimes Michael Lahusky, the bass player, and I would collaborate on lyrics. Like, uh, we played a Scrabble game to get the lyrics for Kay. Oh, tell us about that. We uh, had this one day that uh, we said, okay, we need to write some lyrics. You know, we're working on this new record. We've got some new songs uh, coming up, new riffs. And um, 
let's get together and write lyrics. And so one of the things that we did to kind of uh, jolt our consciousness is we, well, we always played Scrabble in the van or in the studio or whatever. We always had a Scrabble board and said, let's play a game of Scrabble. So we did and we took the words and every other one, the other person would turn it into a sentence, you know, like you had a word and you would turn it into a sentence or uh, one line of the lyric. The other person would look at it and they would have to, you know, build off of that. And so uh, we wrote that song and we practiced it twice, I guess, and uh, uh, went to play it uh, at a fairly big club at the time. I think it, I can't remember if it's the BNL Warehouse at the time or the I and I by then. But it was a big show and uh, got up there and we completely messed it up. I mean, somebody came in at the wrong time. I came in at the wrong time. You know, it was just like, just a great big mess. And uh, we were so embarrassed. It's like, oh, thank God that's over. But you know, we did that all the time. It was just um, kind of like walking a tightrope. You didn't know what would happen. And so uh, right after the show, one of the Seawright brothers, I can't remember whether it was John or Sam, came up to us and they went, that new song. And we were like, yeah, yeah, we know. Oh, it was terrible. We just completely messed it up. <laughs> and he said, no, that is the best thing you've ever done. And so we were like, really? So we got a board tape and listened to it and uh, realized hey, that's better than, you know, the original idea. And so it took us about a month, but we relearned that, that song from the tape, including every single error, so to speak. And uh, that's how it came about. And um, Jason can tell you that's one of the ones that he actually had to score out when he was learning how to play this. It's oh, not really? easy. Yeah. <laughs> that, that tape that Vanessa's talking about, um, it's in the archives. Uh, there's a cassette that says Song of Mystery, and it's that live recording of Kay that they all had to listen to over and over again. Uh, and when I was going to um, to learn these parts, I was really afraid of the time when we're going to get to that song because it, I still hadn't figured out how it was laid out. It wasn't verse, chorus, verse. And if it was, then what was happening in the music was not happening in the lyrics. They were changing at different times. And it was a lot more like, you know, you know, Beefheart doing his vocals in the control room with no music. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just, there was, there was some, some form, but I couldn't put it in terms of any songwriting that I was familiar with. So Jason's just running to the other side of the room. Oh, he's gonna show it to us. Oh yeah. The other day. Yeah, this is this is what I had to do. This is this is the the guitar part from K. Oh. And for I the first first few shows I had to play this. So here I am, you know, with these the playing these songs that were completely built by intuition and using music notation on stage like some kind of nerd but it was the only way that i could get through it <laughs> isn't that amazing wow it is it, and uh you know really i th i just think that shows though uh pylon really i don't know if we were full of 
full of it or what, but we grew confident enough in ourselves as, um, you know, being visual artists and then, you know, moving into music with it, that when a happy, happy accident occurs you and it's good, you've got to be willing to embrace it instead of trying to fix it. You got to be willing to embrace it. And um, um, a lot of our best stuff came about that way from a happy accident. You were talking about trying to find your place in in the music, and you clearly did that. Um, there seems to be quite a contrast between the kind of stripped nature of some of the instrumentation and the amount of kind of raw energy that comes across in your voice and the way you sing. Was it kind of instinctive for you to take the vocals in that direction? Uh, yes, it very obviously was. I didn't... Uh, um you know, like you're saying, working on intuition. Uh, that's how the music made me feel. And whenever we came in to practice, I didn't, um, I like made my mind blank slate. I didn't try to have any preconceived notions. It's like when you come up to a blank canvas or whatever, don't have any preconceived notions about what's going to happen or not going to happen. And I mean, you know, there might be a couple of practices uh, where I won't be able to find or think of or hear anything. But if I'm um, relaxed and, you know, it's going to happen. I mean, who knows where ideas come from? I mean, Jason's worked with me. He knows that uh, it's probably not the easiest thing to be on the other side of that where, you know, sometimes I'm jumping in and I've got something. And then sometimes I'm just like, gosh, I don't hear a place for me in this yet, you know, and I might have to take a, a tape home and listen to it or whatever. Is that not hugely refreshing, actually, Jason, from a sort of production side of a point of view to have to have somebody working with that much freedom? Oh, yeah. It's up to us to provide enough space uh, and, and, and interest, uh, which is something that that Pylon was so good at. Uh, they really they did use negative space so well um and that's part of our challenge is uh, to to keep that in mind but still sound like ourselves and and give Vanessa a canvas to to sprawl out on with her ideas and she she always comes up with something great uh, i never worry about what she's going to do you know usually <laughs> <laughs> hearing the stories of the band and the construction of the songs and and the attitude of of the uh, that surrounded uh and and infused your music making it's so it's so exciting to listen to but pylon did eventually stop because uh you'd taken the decision that you weren't going to continue uh if it, if it was no longer fun to do um can you share a little bit about what what changed for you to make that decision well, um, a lot of people point, you know, to YouTube or whatever, but that wasn't, that's not like the whole story. Um, we didn't really have any internal pressures like you hear of with bands and that we got along pretty well. I mean, we were like a family. We, well, we went out, we ate all our meals together. We always hung out together. Um, we stayed in hotels together. Uh, you know, so uh, that wasn't, you know, 
part of the mix, but what was happening is that there seemed to be more and more external pressures being placed on us uh, by people who were, you know, business people um, who were saying, you need to do this, you should do that. And then uh, it kind of culminated with, uh, we had a booking agent that really his job had been, would say, we want to go out west, we'd like to hit these particular cities if we can do it. Um, we want to be gone for three weeks, you know, get there and back and, you know, not lose money. And uh, he would book the tour. Well, he kept called Michael up uh, one day and he said, I have some exciting news. I booked you a tour with you too. And uh, I think initially he had booked us for like six, five or six dates or something. And uh, Michael's like, wait a minute, hold on. Um, we're not really interested in that, you know, because we knew that wasn't our particular audience, uh, for one thing. For another, uh, you know, he was kind of overstepping his bounds. And one thing, he was like, got into a little bit of an argument with Michael, and he was like, well, if you're not going to do this, why are you in this business? You talk to the band and tell it tell me what they say and uh he came to us and we were like no we don't want to really go out on a um a long tour with a band that we don't really know and uh have to open for them that, that sounds like uh that's not that's not a whole lot of fun that sounds like you know kind of a grind or whatever so he went back to him but uh he said i talked to them they don't want to do it but We've talked about it and, you know, really to help him save face, we said we're going to do a couple of those shows. And uh, we did. Yeah, I mean, the people that we did talk to on YouTube, they were super nice, had super nice team. Uh, 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 Bono and uh, Curtis hit it off. I kept finding him in a stairwell, you know, talking. And, you know, Curtis is just the best storyteller in the world, unlike me. And, you know, so, uh, but went out there and it was like, you know, opening for God or Jesus or something. This was their first U.S. tour and they had become, you know, just extremely big overnight. And people were like, get off the stage. We want you to. And it was like everything. It was the nightmare that we could see coming because nobody knew about us at that odd and that particular audience. Uh, and, uh, nobody wanted to see us. And if we were like, uh, uh, motivated in an industry standpoint, we could have like stood, you know, tall on that space and went, well, we're doing it for, you know, we've got this goal of, you know, doing XXX and, you know, whatever. Uh, but we didn't have that goal. We'd already exceeded all of our goals, to be honest. And uh, so that was catalyst to make us start thinking, well, what are we doing in this business? Because before that, we were kind of like, uh, as a joke, we started saying we're tourists in the land of rock and roll. Um, we were just a bunch of nerds going around. We had hammers around our neck. We'd make a point of, you know, going to Grand Canyon or, going to the National Gallery or, you know, going to the Empire State Building or, you know, driving across the uh, San Francisco Bay Bridge 
um, you know, just enough time to drive across and then come back before sound check, you know, that type of thing. And so, uh, I mean, we were enjoying it. I mean, seriously, got to go all over the country and Canada and England. Um, but uh, we didn't really have those kind of goals that were being thrust upon us. So, you know, that's a very long answer. It's quite it's quite an unusual take on it um, to hear a story from someone in that position to say that you, you know, you, you weren't into the, hadn't bought into the whole industry thing. It's, it's very, obviously, very refreshing to hear that. It, was it, um, yeah, was that a difficult, were, were there any sort of push and pull with moments when it was hard to um, contemplate going further into the industry? Uh, well, we did contemplate that at one point, actually, during that particular year or two. We sent out a few feelers and actually visited some um, record uh, um, companies' offices to visit somebody who had some connection to Atlanta. And uh, uh, it was a little uh, troubling because I know I saw a cassette of a band from Atlanta and a, a case on this guy's desk, and I said, uh, oh, wow, I really like them. Are y'all going to sign them? And um, he was like, well, actually, uh, we're just kind of uh, trolling along so nobody else is signing them. I mean, that's disgusting. I'm sorry. People shouldn't be like that. I don't know. It's, it's uh, I mean, your job when you work for somebody else and when you go to a larger label like that is you really are supposed to make them money. Um, and uh, if, if you are doing a job for somebody else, your job isn't to lose money for them. And so uh, I don't think at that point in time uh, we had any interest really in going to a major label. Of course, as soon as we broke up, we heard from four or five different people, you broke up, we were about to sign you. And uh, it's like, well, sorry, you know. <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, you know, listening to Pylon Live, uh, um, we all agreed when we heard that. It's like, wow, we're actually pretty good right then. Why did we break up? And uh, uh, it was a good life decision, though, because I wouldn't have a family if uh, I, we had broken up. I had my first daughter. And then um, several years later, you know, when she's two years old in 88, 89, um, um, we got together again and I started touring. So it's a good life decision for me. Yeah, for I mean, yeah, yeah the, the, the integrity that but behind that decision is just yeah, it's it's remarkable. But yeah, full full respect to you. But but what was the um during those the, the time when you weren't playing, given that it had been so much fun for you all and you'd been so creatively uh, successful as well, was there much pull to to go back and did you, you know did you feel that pull to return to it when you were had clearly made a decision to step away and 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 also just a kind of extra question to that did you completely draw a veil over your music making did you fully step away from it or did you keep a toe in the water so to speak um i completely stepped away from it at that point in time i got a job working for a copy shop and uh, I also worked on the weekends as a house parent for uh, um, the Mentally Challenge. And uh, 
um, I, you know, I, I was able to go out, I was able to stay home and uh, all that. I was kind of getting into it. And uh, um, then, you know, uh, we decided to have a child, uh, my husband and I, Bob Hay, and uh, the Athens, Georgia music uh, Athens, Georgia, Inside Out came out, and also R.E.M. had recorded uh, Crazy. And we just seemed to be getting more fan mail and uh, um, more interest. And it was like, you know, what's this about? Because um, I, you know, I was just enjoying, uh, you know, being domestic and uh, having a job and not really having to worry about whatever. Um, and making some art, and uh, then Michael came to me, and he said, uh, listen, I've been talking to some guys in uh, REM, and they think that the world might be ready for you right now. Um, would you consider getting back together? And so we made a pact uh, to get back together, um, but it would be run in a more business-like way this time. So it was totally different time different uh head there a little older i think uh let's see what year would that be 88 so i would have been like 27 28 years old and before i was in my early 20s so this you know you get a little bit more worried about you know uh paying your rent than you do when you're younger mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, you kind of yeah. have this kind of faith when you're younger. Oh, everything's going to work out, you know, and it always does. And it's true when you're older, too. But so we did it in a more business-like way. We had a manager. We had a bookkeeper. Um, we had a merchandiser. Um, we made another record um, and uh, all of that. And then uh, at the end of that period, around 91, Randy uh, – he had two boys at the time, young boys, and uh, he said, well, that's it, you know, we're breaking up. And uh, so we tried to talk him out of it, and uh, we couldn't, so then we broke up and uh, didn't get back together again until about 2004. Sure, yeah. And what was, um, how was it when, it when it broke up for you the second time around? What would, uh, how did that leave you feeling? Uh, that was uh, actually that was a, a very disappointing because uh, I'd actually just given up a good job thinking that we were going to be, um, you know, being more business-like finally. It looked like things were coming together. And uh, <clears throat> so then I was just kind of like, oh, my gosh, now I don't have anything. I gave up my job and... Um, now I don't have a band. What am I going to do? You know, but there's always another little job in Athens if you look hard enough. And uh, I was like, well, this is an opportunity. Um, maybe I should go back to school because I've been working management for this copy center. And uh, I was good at it. I was a very good manager. But uh, it was something missing in my life. I didn't feel uh, like uh, I was doing anything for humanity. Uh, so I thought, well, 
you know, there are a lot of nurses in my family. There are a lot of teachers, and I talked to them. They both thought I would be good at either. So I thought it's the easiest thing would be to be a teacher. All I'd have to do is get a teaching certificate on top of my bachelor's degree. And uh, um, I tried substitute teaching, and it turned out I was not cut out for it at all. Um, those kids just ran all over me. Uh, and the principal said, you smile too much. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I, I just was not stern enough. It was just totally against my internal philosophy about how to you know, deal with kids. But there are so many kids now, as my Aunt Rachel used to say, nobody ever taught them how to act right. <laughs> uh, so uh, then I, uh, I said, well, uh, I have a really good friend that just started a new nursing program. I talked to her. She said, I'm going to help you do this. And so I jumped through all the hoops and I got into nursing school. I think they had uh, 400 applications and I took 90 of them. And of the 90, 45 graduated. So I was in the second RN class of this program. And then I was a registered nurse for 21 years. But sometime toward the end of that, um, you know, that time, that's when I met Jason because uh, I became interested in music. I actually started having songs coming into my head. I mean, not just little tidbits, but I can't translate music. I could like hear the whole thing. It would like wake me up and I would like, and then I, all I could manage to write down was like humming some stuff and into my tape recorder and writing some lyrics down. So, uh, Oh, that's um, fascinating. That's, mm. that's a really fascinating thing to discover. And, and so you almost kind of going full circle to that, going into a studio with a semblance of an idea. Jason, how did you get involved with Vanessa at that point? Vanessa had started a, a sort of a, a group with, I think the idea was that when Curtis Crow was unavailable for pylon gigs, they started putting together another project called Supercluster, generalization. Um, and uh, Kay became the bass player for that band. Kay is my wife, Kay Stanton. Um, and I was like, wow, you're in a band with Vanessa and Randy from Pylon. That's amazing. Uh, so we, you know, our, our families got closer together and we started hanging out a lot more. And um, and it came time for them to start recording, and and uh, Vanessa asked me if I would produce or help produce uh, some songs for them. Um, and I recall distinctly having her here in my house uh, on a microphone, and hearing her voice come through my microphone, through my cable, through my preamp, and all the way to my digital audio workstation, and going, "That's the voice." I've been hearing all this time and now it's happening right in front of me and it's my responsibility. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was incredible. Uh, and we get along great. I mean, you can tell she's, she's absolutely the nicest person you'd ever want to meet and, uh, and creative. So uh, I just have to keep on her good side and we've been, we've been <laughs> Uh, been having a great time for uh, how how long has it been 10 years 12 12 years i don't know vanessa a long time now well the first time i met you actually you probably don't even remember this but uh i went to uh, athens pop fest and that's when i first saw Kay. but uh 
um, this weird guy started following me around. You know, pop, Athens Pop Fist brings in people from all over the world. Um, it doesn't happen anymore, obviously, but um, this guy started following me and was like, Vanessa, I, you know, he was just acting really weird. And um, people in Athens don't do that. They tend to leave you alone. So uh, uh, I was like, there's this band playing on stage and everybody's really close in the audience. I said, I'm just going to get right in front and maybe he'll leave, you know, and uh, I'm like right in front. And uh, Jason is playing with uh, Brian Poole. Was it, what band was that? Was that BP oh, Helium? That was the late BP Helium. I happen to be wearing the shirt right now. Oh, there we are. Yeah. It was the Helium. And uh, I'm like, <laughs> You know, they were great, and uh, I just stayed for the whole thing and forgot about that guy. And uh, Jason, we drove, we drove him away off. with our music. <laughs> no, <laughs> recorded this, and uh, um, so he uh, uh, introduced himself and said that Pylon were the reason he moved to Athens. And I was like, get out of here! And uh, that's when I first met you. But yeah. I, I left that area and then that guy's following me again. And I was like, how am I going to get rid of this guy? So like several blocks away, uh, there's a bar called the Manhattan cafe. I said, bing, Curtis and Michael are over there drinking beer. You know, they're having some PBRs. They told me they were going to do that. So, uh, I said, I'm going to go in there and they'll help me get rid of him. So I walked in there and he was like, just like, oh my God, it's the rest of Pylon. And I, I like took off. <laughs> I got to know who this guy is now. I don't know. I don't, I don't think he lived here. Okay. I, I don't remember seeing him again. Maybe they locked him up. I don't know. I mean, it does, it does lean, lean to, into that, uh, that idea of uh, Pylon becoming a cult band doesn't it? And, and, uh, you being cited as a, as an influence by an, a number of people. Um, how, how do you feel about that? Um, you know, really, you know, like I was saying earlier about when I'm away from Pylon, you know, it's like we're cicadas that return every seven or 15 years or whatever. In between, I have no idea what's going on out there. You know, I don't keep that much track of it. I am interested in new music and I will listen to it. Uh, when I hear a band I like, uh, I go buy their stuff. But uh, no, I, I, I just uh, don't have any idea that when PRS, uh, Palo Reenactment Society, started touring, um, going across the country, I kept running into these younger people uh, who had discovered Pylon. I mean, like, I'm talking underage. Uh, I don't know how they found out about us. You know, like remember in Nashville with that club, all those kids with the black X's on their hands. I was like, why did they put X's on their hands? And they said they're underage. And I mean, half the audience have black X's. Um, go into Brooklyn up there. Uh, well, we were playing. Uh, well, you know, there were two younger artists opening, but half the audience was much younger, and half the audience was my age. And uh, a, a little, well, much younger, actually, down to Jason's age, because he's the baby in the band, probably. <laughs> Not quite. Pretty close. At, at 48 years old, I'm the I'm the young, the second youngest. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here, you know. 
So, uh, yeah. So, you know, when we played Prima, Primavera, it was kind of unreal that people there wow. from all over the world knew who Pylon were. Um, that was super interesting. Well, that's definitely doing something for humanity right there. <laughs> How does it make you feel when you hear people citing you as such a, such an influence? And obviously with the with the box set about to come out, there's going to be a whole raft of that happening again for you, isn't there? Well, I hope so. I hope they don't hate it or, you know, whatever, or go, why are they getting all that uh, attention? You know, they're not so much. You know, I hope I don't hear stuff like that. Um, I just hope I, you know, people are nice anyway. But so far, the feedback's been pretty good, and uh, um, I'm um, I'm really happy because this project, as Jason knows, has been in my head. I've been working toward uh, being able to do reissues on vinyl for almost ten years, around ten years. And he came into it, uh, well, about three years ago at practice one night. He said, if you ever want to reissue Pylon on vinyl, I want to master it. And I just kind of filed it in my uh, little, I guess, as one of us joked, our library brain. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, then I had the business side, the unglamorous business side of it to the point where, you know, it looked like we could do it. And uh, and Jason came on board in a big way. I mean, uh, one of our friends pointed out he is like the unsung hero of this because he did all the heavy lifting. I mean, I found uh, a lot of stuff, uh, but he's the one that had to bake it and uh, take it off the reels and uh, remaster it and digitize it and, you know, all that kind of uh, really hard technical stuff. And uh, he went out and scouting on, uh, for stuff on his own, and he's just uncovered some unreal stuff. You know, we couldn't have done it without him. And She's I mean, got boxes and <laughs> boxes of tapes and, you know, just gobs of cassettes that were hers or, or Randy's, uh, aside from all of the multi-track masters and the, and the, and the stereo masters that they made when I, when the band was together. So I took it upon myself to become the archivist. Uh, and I'm just slowly going through all of the tapes and digitizing them and trying to figure out what date they're all from. And so if anybody writes a book on pylon, I have information for you. You, 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 <laughs> might, you might be that person, Jason. I'm, I'm well, I might be, yeah. <laughs> Probably should be further away from the subject than I am, though. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the box set looks beautiful. We were talking about the sort of image choices and stuff and the way that it's, the, the packaging is put together. So it just looks amazing. Oh, uh, yeah, the, the packaging, I just want to talk about it. I mean, of course, the packaging is beautiful as it is at the empty shell without the music. But the packaging is all very true to the pylon spirit. Um, Michael um, did a lot of the graphics, but in his case, he had another person, like I had Jason uh, on the Sonic side, uh, Henry Owings, uh, uh, who has Chunklet, who helped us with Pylon Live. He's also a well-known graphic artist. Uh, uh, they put, got together and he put like a design book together 
to show him this is how we would do it this is what we want to see and uh, um, we have uh, you know like boxes of ephemera um, so we have a lot of stuff to curate from we've uh, dug up some amazing unseen photos uh, like the one that we're using for press the day that box was going to press Henry got a book in the mail that had that photograph in it and what's interesting about it is the very show that Steve Albini writes about in the book and Henry says you've got to call this guy and, and beg him to let us have it and we need the image today and I mean I hadn't even gotten out of bed or gone to the bathroom or had a cup of coffee and I'm like you know going like this please 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 let us have it and we don't have any money because we don't have any more budget but there's a lot of glory involved with it I know I can get you a box set you know that kind of thing and um then um I hadn't even seen the image yet but you know I was like we've got to, and he sent it in he did he gave it to us for use but then um Brady Brock um he was the executive producer he works uh, with New West Records uh he's the vice president of publicity he saw it and he said this is an incredible photo and this is the one and so he actually ended up uh paying him for that photo to use it yeah good decision uh, listen, it's uh, we, we are over an hour. We've taken up a lot of your time, and thank you both so much. It's yeah, been really. a real joy to talk to you both. Um, genuine, a genuine thrill. Um, uh, I'm just going to ask Ben if there's any more questions that he would like to ask. He's shaking, uh, he's waving no. a pen at me, which means no. Because no. um, <laughs> I'll keep talking, you know. Oh, I'd keep listening, Vanessa. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Just to, I think coming to this interview has given us an opportunity to climb inside your music for, you know, the last kind of week or so. And it's been a complete pleasure. Yeah. Just um, absolutely inspirational, a completely unique music. Nothing like it. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. And a, Jason, thank you for being here. Oh, yes, thank, thank you, Jason. Vanessa. And Steve and Ben, thank you for asking me along. This was great fun. Well, we'll be we'll be speaking to you again on, on a future episode, I hope. We're returning to Athens. Can we just finish off this episode, please, Vanessa? Can I ask you to introduce the song that people are going to hear now, please? The song that you will hear next is called The Human Body. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 